Last month, you may have heard our short program about this very topic. That show was released after the controversial photo surfaced from Virginia Governor Ralph Northam's 1984 medical school yearbook page. The page included a picture of one person wearing blackface and another in a Ku Klux Klan outfit. In that show, we talked with scholar Raylan Barnes, whom you just heard speak about the Mummers Parade in Philadelphia. We're going to play a shortened version of our first conversation with Barnes in order to give more context on what a minstrel show looked like back when it was the dominant form of entertainment. If you'd like to hear the full interview, we encourage you to check out the show called The Faces of Racism at our website, BackstoryRadio.org. Barnes is an expert on amateur blackface minstrelsy, so I asked her to define what exactly that is and how it's different from a professional minstrel performance. So professional blackface minstrel shows were the number one form of entertainment in the 19th century, and it was primarily focused in New York City and the Northeast, and they would annually, primarily in summers, do nationwide tours. So it was a small cohort of global blackface celebrities who really were the powerhouse of blackface entertainment. However, after the Civil War... A lot of these professional minstrels, in a moment when we have technological advances in printing technology, photography, start to create a new genre called amateur blackface minstrelsy, Mm -hmm. which was primarily how-to blackface guides that were meant for everyday Americans to learn how to represent stereotypical African-Americans and perform blackface themselves. And why this is important is it switches where blackface takes place from the theater, where the majority of Americans are sort of passive consumers of this genre, to proliferating to schools, fraternal orders, churches, youth groups, And everyday Americans are no longer just the consumers, but they are the participants. Mm -hmm. They are writing the scripts. They're purchasing and selecting songs. They're learning how to play it on the piano. They're mastering how to perform, tap dance. They actually have to physically draw the exaggerated eyes and mouth on their own face. They have to learn how to walk stereotypically, talk in dialect. And so there really creates an embodied knowledge of this art form that previously did not exist. So what kinds of things are happening in the shows in terms of the stereotypes or the themes or even the physicality of the performances that make them such a sensation? So they often have three acts. The first act is called The First Part, and it's basically a musical comedy show. So at the beginning, there would be a parade where the minstrels would go through the audience and they would try to get the audience on their feet to be stomping, to be clapping, to completely be immersed in this experience. And then the interlocutor, who is sort of the combination of a ringmaster and a slave master would announce, gentlemen, be seated. And there would be a half circle on the stage and the men who are doning blackface would sit down simultaneously. They were often dressed in red, white, and blue outfits. So Mm -hmm. there was this intimate link to Americana and patriotism Mm -hmm. and this racial performance from the very beginning. And they would be sitting in a half circle, and on the ends of each half circle, you would have what's called the endmen. Endmen would play the bones, which is an instrument, um, or the tambo, the tambourine. And Mm -hmm. that's where the two characters get their name, 
Mr. Tambo and Mr. Bones. The interlocutor is a straight man for the end men who do typical jokes in dialect, uh, like why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? Things that we think of as very uh, classic childhood iconic uh, jokes and songs. The number one composer was Stephen Foster. So a lot of songs like Oh Susanna, Camp Town Races, Mm -hmm. Old Black Joe, Mm -hmm. My Old Kentucky Home. These are the songs that are being sung. They're very romantic ideas about Southern life and and slavery with really gruesome and horrific lyrics. So they're really commenting on contemporary political stories. I I tell my students sometimes to imagine it as a combination of a midnight screening of Rocky Horror Picture Show and The Daily Show. It's Mm -hmm. a completely wild situation where the audience is encouraged to participate. Everybody knows the songs. Everybody sings along. People dance. But at the same time, you're getting political commentary. The second part is often called the oleo. This is where we have stump speeches, which are primarily stand-up comedy routines where a single person would do a, quote, bobolition speech, which is black dialect, which is a made-up language, for an abolition speech. Mm. So they are specifically lampooning abolition and black politicians during both antebellum and Reconstruction, and taking on major themes of the day. So one of their favorite things to make fun of is actually temperance. And so you would have a politician who would be going on and on in these completely illogical, rambling dialect speeches and making a fool of himself to completely ridicule black politicians. But at the same time, they're also making fun of white women. So it's very much a masculine affair, a pro-white masculine affair. How were women represented in the minstrel shows? Whenever you have a a woman represented on stage, it's a white man in blackface and also drag. Mm. And they typically wore padding during Reconstruction to represent the mammy figure. But during antebellum America, they actually were really sexual. They were normally called the mulatto wench. And I think that that's a really important thing to take note of because during slavery— The United States, obviously, after the slave trade closed down, had to focus on reproducing slave labor. And Mm -hmm. that include a lot of sexual violence against African-American women to force that reproduction of the slave population. And so in minstrel shows during antebellum America, before the Civil War, black women were always portrayed as sexy seductresses. However, after the Civil War it completely flips. They become obese. They have to cover their hair in kerchiefs. They are completely desexualized. And so I think that that's an important thing to track and pay attention to in blackface minstrel shows in terms of how the stereotypes are reacting to what is happening in African-American freedom struggles, both in terms of the politicians they're making fun of and also African-American women as they gain rights. And what does the third and final act of the minstrel show look like? The third part is basically a short player routine. And in between these sections, I should say, they're interspersed with Stephen Foster songs or other uh, blackface dialect music of the time. They tended to be very sentimental, Mm -hmm. songs about uh, loss. And I think this is part of why the shows, when they spread out of New York City, are so relatable to people. Because in the mid-19th century, it's really a moment where a lot of people are 
separated, whether they are immigrants who came to New York, if they're people who moved west to try and pursue gold, or if they were um, trying to create a new life somewhere else. And so then we have this at the height of the Civil War as well, when we have millions of people who are displaced. And so all of a sudden, these songs that are supposed to be articulating longing and displacement from African-American slaves who are sold throughout the American South um, suddenly begins to voice this longing and displacement that white people are experiencing, but through blackface in really kind of confusing and complex ways. Now, many people might not be aware of the fact that what we understand as a, a 19th and 20th century institution, Jim Crow segregation, draws its name from the minstrelsy character of the early part of the 19th century. And Correct. I'm curious, g- given what you've already outlined about the relationship between violence or, you know, portrayals of even violent themes in the music, how we're to understand why Jim Crow came to define the form of legalized segregation in America. So one thing that I think is really interesting is 1896 is the year that we get Plessy v. Ferguson, which federalizes and permanently entrenches mass segregation in the United States. It's also the same year that we have projected film for the first time in New York City. And so segregation, Jim Crow as an era, and issues of racial representation in mass culture are intimately linked from the beginning. Jim Crow takes on a really interesting metaphorical role during this era because Jim Crow was essentially a buffoon. He speaks in dialect. He's supposed to be dim-witted. He is supposed to love and adore his life in slavery. Highly romantic about how in slavery, this sort of pro-slavery ideology that slaves were given free housing, they were given free food, they mm-hmm. just sauntered through the fields all day and sang. And so mm-hmm. he's a very destructive stereotype because he represents African-Americans as being happy-go-lucky and bumbling through life and carefree when that's really the exact opposite of what is happening during Jim Crow America. I have to imagine that, especially after the end of the Civil War, that there's really an explosion of the uses of Jim Crow among whites, given their anxiety about African-Americans' new status as freedmen. Yeah, and it's also important to remember that he has a counterpart, Zip Coon. Zip Coon is the urban dandy representation of African-Americans. And so during Reconstruction and post-Civil War, he really takes off because of the stereotypes that are shifting for African-Americans, especially as we see a mass migration of freed Black African-Americans from moving to places like Atlanta. And then throughout the 20th century, as we have the Great Migration, when six million African-Americans move north and move Mm. west to places Mm. like Chicago, in the amateur form, Zip Coons renamed Rastus. And he's basically this sexually aggressive, domineering, very leering character who uh, is in the city. He's always wearing mismatched clothing, but tries to dress very sophisticated. Both Jim Crow and Zip Coon have this sort of 
constant stereotype that no matter how desperately they try to integrate into white America or be professional or be successful, they always just get it slightly wrong. And that's why they're so funny, that it's comical, every attempt to assimilate and professionalize. And so it's really entrenching or crystallizing African-Americans as something that's backwards, something that's affiliated with the South, even when they're clearly uh, not anymore. So you've written that blackface has, quote, proved to be a hard cultural habit to break, unquote. I'm curious, given your perspective on this art form in, in the long view, what you imagine is necessary or possible in terms of breaking the habit relative to blackface. One of the things that I think is ironically happening is we have Americans who are really concerned about blackface. They know that this is taboo. They know that this is wrong. But we've lost the language and the through line to articulate why this is so upsetting and jarring and wrong. And so the answer to me is really we need to openly talk about and teach the history of blackface. There's actually been a series of high school teachers in the United States in the last 20 years who lost their jobs simply for trying to teach the history of blackface. And I don't mean teachers who are showing up in blackface on campuses, but literally just lecturing on the history of blackface. Mm. It was so censored and seen as so taboo, we didn't even have conversations. And so then you do have younger generations who don't understand some of the negative things that they physically embody. Uh, sort of the way it crops up right now is a lot of times costumes of hip-hop artists or hip-hop mm -hmm. parties. And so some of these younger students don't understand the longer lineage of what they're doing, but we all know the song lyrics to Oh Susanna. We all know why did the chicken cross the road? There's these cultural touchstones that takes the cake. It was a cakewalk. All of these things are very intense references to the minstrel show tradition that we don't fully understand exactly because we're not teaching it in schools. And so my hope is that American cultural history and its importance and its direct connections to legal systems, political structures, and systemic white supremacy will be taken more seriously and integrated into the curriculum. Raylan Barnes is a history professor at Princeton University. She's also the author of the forthcoming book, Darkology, When the American Dream Wore Blackface. 